Now, there are three rules you gotta follow when talking with Joe Dante. First, keep him out of the light. He hates bright light, especially sunlight. It'll kill him. And keep him away from water. Joe Dante hasn't had a glass of water in his hand since the Roger Corbin days. He likes to keep his throat parched. But the most important rule, the rule you can never forget, no matter how much Joe Dante cries, no matter how much he bangs or whimpers, never, never feed Joe Dante after midnight. Got it? Okay, so I am here with Joe Dante, who is most recently the director of The Hole. Joe, how are you doing? Hi, fine. It's a pleasure to chat with you 10 minutes after 10, 10 a.m. on October 10th, 2010. Is there any significance to this? Oh, this is the 10, 10, 10, 10 day, isn't it? Oh, my gosh. I wasn't aware. Oh, cool. (laughs) Okay. I actually wanted to... Bo Derek should be here. Exactly. (laughs) Yes. Arcane joke for you people. people. I'm familiar with Blake Edwards' (laughs) movies, don't worry. Um, I wanted to actually ask you, uh, one thing I've been really curious about is the colors within your work. I mean... In a lot of those early movies, there's a lot of red gels. There's also a lot of greens. And in the first Police Squad episode that you directed, nearly every set has a green wall. Jeez, you're, and, a, you're a scholar, yeah, aren't you? I'm just, I'm just <laughs> noticing. What was interesting to me about the whole is that you do carry on the red motif quite a bit. And, of course, the blue motif that seemed to enter from post-explorers onwards. But I'm curious about what goes into a decision from, from colors on, along these lines. Well, you know, to me, there are always two kinds of movies. There were, there were uh, movies that were in color. And then there were color movies. And I learned by watching the works of Mario Bava, an yes. Italian director who was a photographer, that uh, there's a difference. And that there are movies that are p- planned and thought about in color. And there used to be a color consultant credit on old movies, you know, in Technicolor. Yeah. used to be, you know, uh, people who would watch out, oh, no, those two colors don't go together. Um, and, I, you know, color has an emotional impact. And, and I, I have to tell you, I'm a, I'm a huge black and white fan. I mean, I really think black and white is actually my preferred uh, format. But uh, if you're going to do a movie in color, it seems to me that you should exploit the fact that it's in color. Yeah. So uh, Mario Bava used to use colored gels and, and uh, in very daring combinations that even sometimes, as one reviewer said, risked ugliness. Yeah. Um, and I was always very impressed with that. So uh, there's a stylization that happens when you start to work out, you do strange things with color that uh, I find makes the movies more theatrical. So uh, in my work, and I've worked with various DPs, and I've shown them different movies on occasion. I've shown them uh, John Alton movies and uh, movies for Douglas Sirk movies from the 50s that, that are, you know, very stylized. And, and said, you know, this, this is the look I want. Or Stanley Cortez, you know, this is the kind of look I want this to have. And they've never ever given me exactly that look because that's not what their job is. Their job is to interpret. So I've done a lot of movies that have, you know, pretty interesting use of color and and are are kind of striking. I'm wondering if the gelled look of your movies, particularly the early ones, has much to do with the typical Roger Corman shoot with the car lights on, or whether that Italian horror influence of the 70s, both Mario Bob and I would argue Dario Argento, was kind of an influence there all along. Well, it really was all along, yeah. although in my first movie for Roger, it, the movie was made in 10 days, and the yeah. only time, the, there's a scene in the movie where a mad killer chases a girl through a movie lot, yes. and the only reason it's in the movie is because, and it's out of it's out of touch with the tone of the movie. It's it's not like it's a comedy, the movie, yeah. but this scene isn't. Um, is because I thought, well, I may, may never get to make another movie. Yeah. So I want to get my Mario Bava stuff, 
in here. I want to put my my fog in the air and get some shafts of light and you know all that stuff, and I'll do it in this scene. Yeah. And so you watch this movie, Hollywood Boulevard, and it's filled with all this silly stuff, and all of a sudden there's this horrible murder in the middle of it, and it's kind of like, hmm, this doesn't really belong there. But I, it was just it was my obsession. I, I was crazy about those movies. Going to do my best to tie in the hole to your oeuvre, so to speak. But I want to actually uh, talk about the fact that in all of your movies, in the children's bedrooms, we often see like comic books, sandwiches, all manner of toys and bric-a-brac spread across mm. the beds. We see it in the hall too with that window seat. Uh, you know, I, I noticed. Oh, there's that Dante. Like <laughs> nothing is ever clean in a children's bedroom. I wanted oh, to ask. Come on, if you ever had kids, you'd know there's nothing ever clean in a kid's bedroom. Well, yeah. Well, well but I want. <laughs> <laughs> to ask you, I mean, does that come from your own childhood, or is it just visually interesting? Well, or is it, it is. It is interesting, but yeah. uh, but uh, you know, it's it's the detail. I mean, movies are just collections of details, and if, particularly if it's a period movie, you want to be able to cram as much detail in as possible. When yeah. I did matinee, I actually went into my garage and pulled out all my old monster magazines and all my old movie posters and stuff, and stuck them on the kid's wall and made it look as much like my room did in 1962 as possible. What, like, Reference shots and the like, or well, no, I just uh, the, the posters on the wall, the yeah. drawings that I did of, of monsters. They were my drawings that I did. Yeah, I mean, I I knew you drew in the rooms because, of course, we have that in Explorers, we have that in the Hole, we have that in Small Soldiers. Well, we have kids a lot of drawing. kids who draw in yeah. my movies, which yeah. is which is I, was never actually intentional, <laughs> but it's just ended up. And once again, I'm doing the Hole, and it's like, wait a minute, this kid draws too. You know, it's it's. I don't know if I'm attracted to it or if it's a way of my getting into those characters or what. But but there's a lot of young artists in my pictures. Yeah, I wanted to talk about the inside jokes. There are a few in the whole. I noticed the yellow smiley face from the howling uh, in the background at one point. But it seemed to me that you were almost dialing down the typical inside jokes within the shots for I did, this movie. I did because it's not. It's it's uh, at at heart. It's a it's a kind of a sad movie when yeah. you think about it I mean there's a when you find out what's in the hole it's it's much more melodramatic uh, and personal than you would expect it's not you know little animated monsters coming out and and so the tone of the movie is uh, it's a little tricky to do a lot of those nudge nudge wink wink uh, things which I which I learned early on in my in my career that the, that you can't do to the ex at the expense of people who don't know yeah. what you're talking about yeah. in The Howling I had a scene where Roger Corman looks for a dime in a, in a phone booth and it, it was it was funny to people who knew Roger but when people didn't know Roger it was like well the scene is over why are we lingering on this extra piece because it doesn't mean anything to me and I, and I realized that, 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 that you can't do that you have to play within the rules and if you do something that's off the point it should be done as an aside or in the background or as a little detail that people will maybe notice the second time they see the picture yeah well this is interesting you're talking about a lingering moment and this leads me to wonder if it's more difficult these days not just from a financial standpoint but also from a aesthetic standpoint for you to convince a producer to give you work because your movies do in fact linger on that beat like that Corman moment in the howling that you were just mentioning or I even think of, I even watched your episode of CSI out of morbid curiosity, and I'm seeing all these really great Dante master shots that unfortunately are being butchered by the crazy editing that goes on with that show. So the question is, is how can a guy like you, who, who's extremely skillful with these, these Panavision-like shots, the 70 millimeter that you did in Explorers and the like. I mean, is this more of a tougher sell? I mean, Looney well, Tunes. It's yeah. not a tough sell. I mean, it, it, people hire you for various reasons. But yeah. you know, when you when you sign on to do a picture to do a TV series, yeah, uh, you, you must 
adopt the style of yeah. the TV series. Now, I can shoot the stuff any way I want, but I know that in TV that you, you do your cut and you hand it in, yeah. and then you see it on TV, and it's always different because the showrunners come in and they change it to the style that they prefer. So you shoot a lot of long takes, you do whatever, but you just have to give them enough material for them to turn it into what they want. Yeah. It's never an expressive um, job. You, you, you don't really feel you're putting yourself into it. Although, as much as I could, I stuck myself into it and I stuck people who were familiar to working with me in the show. And it was, I think, a little bit different, a little bit offbeat from the, the usual episodes of the show. But, you, but the, the problem with doing a show like that is that there's, a, there's an overarching storyline that happened before you came yeah. and is going to continue after you're gone. So there's really not a lot of space for you to insert yourself because it, that you're, you're, you're doing a job of work and you're not the auteur yeah. of the show. The auteur of the show is the writers because they've, they're the ones who are mapping out this entire scenario. The great thing is if you can get in on the ground floor and do the pilot. Yes. You do the pilot for a show like I did for Erie, Indiana, then you get to not only choose the cast, uh, you, get you, you get to set the aesthetic and you get to, uh, to influence the way the stories go and which direction they go and even sometimes who's hired to direct them. So that's very creative and interesting and fulfilling. Doing uh, one-offs is, you know, financially rewarding and a chance to work with a lot of talented people that you probably wouldn't get to see otherwise. But it's not, it's never like making a feature. It's never like saying, okay, this is my, my movie. And, and that's why I, I prefer on TV to do anthology shows because it's much more like doing a short film yeah. than it is to, to just coming in and doing it, uh, illustrating an episode of somebody else's series. Is it also a way of staying in shape so you don't atrophy? Or? Well, it's also a way of paying the mortgage. You know? I mean, <laughs> that's true. Uh, you, yeah, this is TV, this that's TV. really the reason why you did the CSI in New York episode. Uh, no, I, I did it because it would be fun, but yeah. also, yeah, I did it because I, I wasn't working and I'd, I'd like to, you know, the great thing about Erie, Indiana was that if I was doing a feature, I could do that and go away and then I could come back and I could do more Erie, Indiana's, but yeah. then, you know, it went off the air and then yeah. I couldn't do that anymore. So so the trick is to try to find a way to keep yourself employed that doesn't um, turn you into a hack, basically. Yeah. I mean, I, I always try to do things that, that for movies, my, my yardstick is I don't make movies that I wouldn't go see. Yeah. And uh, I, I think if more people did that, we'd have better movies. Yeah. Is it true, speaking of Erie, Indiana, I have heard that the original negatives were destroyed. Is this true? Well, the problem with TV in the 90s yeah. was that they were shot on film yeah. and then they were edited on video. And then they were turned into these big D1 videos that were run on network television. But nobody ever bothered to cut the negatives of this stuff. Yeah. And all you had was these trims. I mean, you had all the dailies that were shot, and you had, had to be stored somewhere. Well, nobody wants to pay for that. So ultimately, that stuff all gets thrown out. So the only thing that exists on many of the things I've done, Runaway Daughters, which I did for Showtime, and the Twilight Zone episode I did in the 80s, the only things that exist are these tape masters, and they are outmoded. These are, these are types of material that there, sometimes there aren't even things to play them back on. So when it comes time to say, okay, now we're going to put out our Blu-ray, no Blu-ray. Yeah. I mean, you're lucky if there's a DVD, and the DVDs are all kind of fuzzy. And that's the best it'll ever look. How do you live with this impermanence? Because, well, I mean, it, you know, how, does, how did John Ford live with the fact that all his silent movies were, were gone? You yeah. know, I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's just a, it's the luck of the draw. Yeah. I wanted to go back to what we were talking about in terms of creative control and to also tie this back into the whole, I'm, I'm doing my best here, but uh, the situation I know on Looney Tunes back in action was a fractious one. Uh, and yet, to my mind, that movie is unapologetically a Joe Donne movie. Um, I'm, you know, I'm wondering what you have done to 
get that personal stamp. Ironically enough, uh, also bringing to mind this, this situation where you never actually have a Joe Dante film on the credits, which is quite interesting. Well, I, 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 there's too many people that you work with to make a movie. I mean, it's a collaborative effort. And, and I, I did uh, once have on a poster a Joe Dante film, and it was on Innerspace because Steven Spielberg insisted uh, because I had done other pictures for him and people assumed that he had directed them because his, it was a presentation credit. So he said, this time I want you to have clearly have it say Joe Dante film. And I said, okay, but don't, don't make me do it on the movie. Yeah. And so we didn't do it on the movie, we just did it on the posters. But I, I don't, uh, it's, if people want to take it, that's fine with me. But I, I just don't, I didn't write it usually. I didn't photograph it. I, I, you know, I may have edited it. I, and I try to put as much of my personality as possible into it. But the whole idea of a Joe Dante film I don't know. I mean, it just seems unfilmed to Joe Dante to me. You know, uh, I, I I think there's just too many people involved to be able to take that. I'm I'm just more more comfortable not taking it. Did you have Final Cut on the whole? Uh, in a way. I mean, uh, the only pictures I ever really had Final Cut on were, <laughs> which is amazing, uh, were Explorers, which I couldn't use my Final Cut because the picture was released unfinished, and then uh, I think I had Final Cut on Matinee. Uh, but not Gremlins 2? I thought you had Final Cut for that. Nah, well, I shared it with Stephen. That's oh, not see. quite the same thing. Yeah. Uh, it, 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 it's better. I mean, working for Stephen was great because, you know, it, it, you had somebody with you versus the studio as opposed to being alone, yeah. which I learned on Explorers. Um, and, uh, and so he was always in your corner. But then, but there would be pressure on him. Like, you know, if the studio didn't like the movie and he did... There would be so, you'd have to sort of make them happy by doing make a sacrifice, do something, take this scene out, take or recast this character, which is happened in one movie. Um, they're just things you had to do to make them happy. Yeah. And uh, he was very good at it, uh, and it was great to work for him. Yeah. What situations have you had to really kind of play almost a shell game? It seems to get what you want. Like I think of again going back to Looney Tunes back in action, which I just think is again a very distinctive movie, uh, surprisingly so. Well, yeah. the only thing, the only problem with that movie is that the movie that you saw has a different beginning, a different middle, and a different end than the one that I started to shoot. Uh, so there's a whole other movie out there in in, in trims. <laughs> what what, 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 what what's the differences? Between oh, it, 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 it began with a Batman cartoon with Duff, Daffy Duck in it. Uh, it had it ended with uh, it ended in the jungle uh, with um, Tweety, a giant Tweety eating um, uh, Steve Martin. Uh, it was just, it was completely different. And, and the problem with the movie, aside from the, the contentious um, uh, relationships with the studio, was that uh, because the picture was never going to be um, finished animation until it was done, they never wanted to show it to anybody. Yeah. And I find that this is truer now than ever, that, that because of the internet, because of Ain't It Cool News, because of uh, leaks, uh, the studios are terrified about anyone seeing the film. Yeah. And so as a result, you don't get the kind of audience feedback that you want and I'm not saying that I, I like you know uh, the, the uh, uh, those those guys who come in with their pads and pencils and you know and, and write down numbers and ask the audience what they thought that you don't need that if you're a filmmaker you sit in an audience and you can tell when you lost them yeah you can tell what works you can tell what doesn't you can tell when this joke is in the right place and when it isn't if the scene is too long or if the exposition is too long at the beginning which is often the case you can tell that I mean it's you just know yeah you don't need some guy saying, okay, how would you like to see it end? Or should they have a dog? Or, you know, all those other dumb questions. And the other problem with those screenings, of course, is that if there's any scene in contention, if somebody sneezes during it, the studio says, take it out. Yeah. 
so it can be destructive. But on the other hand, it, particularly with a comedy, you want to know whether it's working. You can't just guess. And when you've done a comedy and you've watched the same scene 200 times, uh, you can't, it's not funny to you anymore. Yeah. You know, it's just a technical exercise. And the problem with studios is they'll watch comedies and they'll go, well, you know, the first time they thought it was funny. Then they'll watch it again and again. The third time they go, it's not funny. That joke's not, no good. Take it out. Put something else in. But if these studios are operating inherently on innately objective data and you can subjectively or even list like emotionally feel it, why, why has this... Listen, there's no continue? rhyme nor reason yeah. to the way that studios operate. I have a friend who had a... He, he, he had his version of the movie and they had their version of the movie. They tested both. His version tested better yeah. and they released theirs instead. Now, that's just suicidally stupid. And, but it, it's, it, there's egos involved. Egos, egos, egos. There's a lot of egos in Hollywood. And uh, there's a lot of people who don't know much but think they know a lot and uh, are impelled to tell you what you should do and how you should do it. And no matter how many years you've been doing it and they, how few years they've been doing it, they know better. And they expect you to, you know, toe the line, which makes it difficult for older filmmakers who, you know, been around the block to work for studios and take the advice of people who are frankly not qualified to give it. And so you end up making someone else's mistakes. Because when the movie comes out, it doesn't say so-and-so executive is the responsible for this mistake. It's you, you get the, you get the blame. So uh, it's just easier to um, sidestep that completely. Did you get the blame for the Looney Tunes back in action? Of course, who else are they gonna blame? Yeah. It for, says directed by, Yeah. you know. Uh, and also they didn't open, it didn't make any money because they had taken the cartoons off the air for five years and when the picture came out, the, the kids didn't know who the characters were. Yeah. So, so this movie that everybody thought was gonna be this shoe-in, you know, it, it, even, it didn't matter how much battles we'd had. It didn't matter what the content was in the cans. They played to empty theaters. They could have released my version. They could have, they could have saved themselves $20 million and not shot all the reshoots that they shot, you know, which amounted to, it didn't change anything. Yeah. But there, that's well, showbiz. Well, you, you alluded that you didn't have final cut on the whole, so what, where did you have to make a compromise for this? Well, you have to compromise because, you know, a, a time, length, uh, it's, it, it's a somewhat edgy story that you have to figure out sort of a tightrope walk to do about how are you going to tell this story it, it, it subtly involves child abuse and how much of that is going to be apparent to children and how much is not so you you know it's a gray area and everybody's got an opinion yeah. uh, and and the the kind of notes that you tend to get on movies these days are often from people who don't really have a lot of experience giving notes on movies and and, and a lot of the notes will be similar to notes that you would get on a script yeah. saying, well, can, can we have this happen, and can this ha and, and you, and, but this movie's already shot, you know, and none of those things were filmed, so how are you going to put them in the movie? So you, you end up, uh, it's a pride, look, it's all diplomacy, it's all negotiation. Uh, at the end of the day, you want to be on the same page as the people who are paying you, and uh, if you're lucky, nobody changes their mind during the production of the movie and decides it's not for that audience, it's for this audience, and then you, you're like in the middle of a movie and they want you to change course and make a different kind of a picture than you started to make. Well, that often ends up with a very confused movie. Yeah. So in this case, because I was a small company and because it wasn't a great deal of money, um, you know, the movie turned out essentially the way it should have. The question though is how much are you at the behest of a label like family film or horror with something like The Hole? I mean... Well, that's one of the problems I think is, is you know, how do you, how do you pigeonhole uh, a picture like this? Because it's, you know, horror movies are now considered pictures where people's eyeballs pop out. Um, that's not how I look at it. I mean, I think horror movies are movies that bring up internal fears and, and, and make you anxious and, and afraid and, and creeped out. 
which is great. But, you know, there's also the gross-out horror movie, and that's really kind of taken over as the general thought of what a horror movie is. Uh, and this isn't that. This is much more of an 80s-style uh, picture. And, you know, it's, it's had a very good reception overseas, and we're hoping that uh, if we can get people to see it here, <laughs> it'll have a good reception here. Why has Europe been more receptive to the Because whole... it got released there. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> because but I mean, but why did it get released there and not here, for example? I mean, it just... Um, uh, because, you know, you can't make a movie and sit on it uh, and, and just keep absorbing the cost. I mean, you've got to yeah. do something with it. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, you know, you, you release it wherever people want to see it. Yeah. Uh, and in this case, we're, uh, because of all the big fake 3D movies that came out and, and used up the theaters, we ended up kind of on the short end. So we're hoping that, um, you know, we can change that with the screenings like this. Just, just to backtrack to a thread we were talking about earlier about the amount of visual information that is in your films, I'm wondering if shooting in 3D was one of the reasons why you had to dial down some of the inside jokes. And I also wanted to ask if it also represents a certain limitation because you're dealing with a situation when you're blocking, when you're editing, if you give the audience too much information to process, I mean, it's going to well, be a little Well, it's crazy. definitely different shooting a 3D movie than it is a flat movie, but it isn't that different. And it certainly would have nothing to do with whether there would be in-jokes in the movie or not. Yeah. I mean, it's obviously... Uh, every, every movie is, every director directs differently, but, but it always involves blocking people and images within a shot and framing things and compositions. The compositions may be somewhat different in 3D than they would be in 2D simply because of, of editing. Editing in 3D is trickier because uh, the spatial planes and, and the ocular information uh, is is going to be different in every shot, and therefore you can you can have something jutting out from uh, from the screen at the audience in one shot, and and you don't want to cut directly to that because it can be very unpleasant on the eyes. And so there's a whole comfort factor that you have to keep in mind when you're when you're working on the movie. And sometimes in post, where you do um, you shoot the movie in 3D, but you also have some leeway in post to be able to move things around in the frame spatially. You may decide that you want to tone down the 3D effect at the beginning of the cut. And then as the scene goes on, you may want to enhance it. And then depending on what your next image is, you may want to dial it down again just before the next cut. Um, and all of these things are part of the art of you know, moving the content around um, so that it gives the audience the most pleasing version of the 3D. And, 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 and there are a lot of strange quirks with 3D in terms of focus and in terms of certain things that start to look like they're miniatures uh, if, if they're photographed a certain way. And um, so you, it, it takes a very experienced, you know, guy. I mean, I don't do the 3D. I just direct the movie. We had a guy named Max Penner who was our stereographer, and he would say, you can do this, but don't do that. Take that thing out of the corner of the shot because it's going to be in the fifth row. You know, a lot of stuff like that. that and doing over the simple over the shoulders is, is like... Uh, you, you have to make sure that the, the, the spatial plane is at the, on the, at the screen level and then further back. But if you put the shoulder out in the audience, it's a very creepy effect. It's like this thing, this image is thing is, is hovering and it draws your eye yeah. away from what you're supposed to look at. Well, how much of these observers were on the set? I mean, I'm really curious. I mean, did you have... Uh... No, you do it on the set. You have 3D on the set. You have a monitor. Yeah. And you can play it back. Uh, he can play it back and point out what was wrong. Yeah. You can do it again uh, and correct whatever that was. Um, yeah, I mean, you depend on this guy. And, and, and the only thing that takes a little bit more time in 3D is correcting things that you didn't do right the first time. 
and, and, and there's a little bit more time lighting because you have to overlight. When you walk on the set of a 3D movie, it looks like uh, you know, you're watching a soap opera because it's just all lots of light. And that's because so much light is lost in the process of you know, going through, um, turning it into 3D and then running it through those filters and then the glasses, and you know, it, it starts to get darker. So you have to overexpose by like two stops or it's something? It's not quite overexposure. I mean, you, you, it, but it's, it's just, you have to, there's more information there. Yeah. And, uh, and depending on which system you use, um, the, I, I prefer the Real-D system to the Dolby system. Because the Dolby system, uh, the, the, the best thing about that for exhibitors is you don't have to put in a new screen. But the glasses, which are slightly tinted red and blue, make the picture darker than they do in the Real-D system. So I, I, I prefer Real-D. Although Dolby's fine, or else it wouldn't have been accepted as well as it has. But uh, at last night's screening, I thought that it was a trifle dark. I mean, do you have enough contrast with the, uh, this system at all? Or? Well, no, you, you, the con it's, it's, it's a digital video. So, I mean, you can manipulate it in ways that you could never manipulate film in the 50s. Sure. And so uh, you can get a very, very good effect. I mean, you saw U2 3D. I mean, it's phenomenal. Yeah. It's a great concert film, and it makes you feel like you're really there. I'm also curious, uh, speaking of 3D, how much you planned, you know, you had to put the kibosh on, or it didn't turn out nearly as uh, effective as, as you anticipated, because when the 3D guys came back, they said, well, look here, 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 here. I mean, did you have to completely readjust how you use specific planes for certain shots, or? Um, I, no, it was, I, I think if I hadn't done another film in this format before, I might have made more mistakes, but uh, it went pretty smoothly. You know, we didn't. We were never behind because of the 3D. We we were behind sometimes because the kids would have to go home. You know, I mean, when you work with kids, they can only work for certain hours a day. And if you Labor don't, laws, yeah. if you don't have good doubles, uh, you can't complete scenes. And unfortunately, in Vancouver, our double uh, for the youngest kid was an, a, a lovely kid, but he wasn't an actor, and he couldn't even read the lines back. So, it's a, it's a real um, hardship on an actor when he has to stare at a double, and then the lines are coming from the script supervisor over in the corner, and you still got to stare. And, and make believe you're not hearing the voice from over there. It, it's, it just makes it harder. Yeah. One last question. I wanted to also ask you about how you choreograph a scene with non-existent elements. I, I think of the final conclusive scene in the hall. I also think of the, uh, the brawl Looney Tunes back in action between Brendan Fraser uh, at Yosemite Sam's and the like. Does a lot of that come with planning? What do you do to direct the actors to let them know that there is a illusory image there? Well, green screen is particularly difficult uh, because there's nothing to um, relate to. Yeah. You know, I mean, if you've seen the Star Wars, the recent Star Wars movies, you see all these really good actors, and they kind of look a little lost because they're acting on sets with no furniture, and there's 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 a green screen behind them, and there's no parameter, you know, and it's 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 like doing our town you know, with no props. It, it's, it's really odd. And to do a fight scene with a, with a cartoon character, for instance, who isn't there, yeah. um, it, it obviously involves stunt people. But uh, I, I was lucky in that Brendan Fraser ha seems to have a particular gift for staring at points in space and making you think that that's where he's looking. Yeah. And not further and not closer. He actually looks like he's looking right at the spot in the frame where there's nothing. And uh, in, in the case of the uh, fight in the saloon in uh, Looney Tunes, you know, it, it, was, it went pretty smoothly. And, and Eric Goldberg was my uh, um, animation director. And I never could have done the movie without him. I tried to get him a co-director credit, but it didn't, didn't fly. Um, and uh, and it, was, it was a fascinating 
you know, technical experience. It was it was just the aesthetic part of it that was a little difficult. Thanks so much, Joe. It was a pleasure chatting with you, and uh, best of luck. Oh, thanks a lot. Nice T-shirt. Sure. Yeah, I, I figured. Let me tell you about-